Hello and welcome to the Longborough podcast. I'm Polly Graham, Artistic Director of Longborough Festival Opera, a 500-seat homegrown theatre in the Cotswolds. In this episode, I catch up with the acclaimed librettist and opera director Sir David Poutney, who was in the midst of staging his own ring cycle in Chicago when the pandemic first struck. The subject of our discussion is comedy in the ring cycle. We look at where and how we can find humour inside this huge work of art and how this deepens our understanding of the story. Hi David, it's great to be talking to you. I was thinking about the idea that came to me through Patrick Kavanagh, the Irish poet, that tragedy, he said, is underdeveloped comedy. (laughs) And that made me start thinking about the cyclical nature of the ring cycle, which of course ends in a kind of tragedy, the mess and betrayal and vengeance, which run all the way through the plot of Götterdammerung and leads to Brynhilde giving back the gold to the Rhine Maidens, taking us back to the beginnings of the story that start four operas earlier in Das Rheingold. You, David, have always described that opera to me, Rheingold, as a cartoon, and it certainly uses black humour to great effect. So do we perhaps end with tragedy, but because of the cyclical nature, begin or almost develop into comedy? I think the first thing to say is that we have to remember that Wagner is, as a, as a writer, a complete dramatist. And nobody could be a complete dramatist without being able to make use of comedy, however serious mm. might, be their, might be their aim. And we don't need to look further than Goethe and Shakespeare to, to prove that point. Secondly, I would actually contest your statement that Goethe Demerung ends in tragedy. Well, of course it doesn't, because it is beset with tragedy the whole way through, and nasty things and betrayal, etc. But of course it concludes with a kind of rebirth. It it concludes with an act of purification and redemption, I guess. Uh, But I think it's also worth pointing out that, I mean, if you speak very crudely, two out of the four operas are comedies. I mean, you know, the definition of a comedy is it's a piece with a happy ending. ending. Yeah. Uh, Reinhold obviously has a kind of sarcastic happy ending. Um, Siegfried definitely has a happy ending. You know, the boy gets the girl yeah. at the end of Siegfried. That is the definition of a comedy. Um, so half the ring is actually falls into the category of, of comic pieces, though not all the content is that comic. So in the grand structural sense, comedies, comedy and tragedy or seriousness are very evenly balanced. It's true to say that it's not the primal association that many have with the ring cycle when they think about it. No, that, that's because Wagner has this <laughs> rather, dis- rather distressing um, tendency to kind of nullify people's brain power <laughs> once they get sort of sucked into this massive orgasm of very, very powerful music, um, you know, the ability to kind of think clearly about what's going on is very quickly overwhelmed. I totally agree. A great writer must have a whole range of comedy and tragedy at their disposal in order to, to be completely fluent in their craft. 
I was thinking that in a way it's signaled that comedy is going to be something of a key player, at least in the in part of the storytelling, because the whole genesis of the story of the ring starts with laughter and mockery. The Rhine Maidens mock Alberic, and that precipitates the entire domino effect of the narrative. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, Alberic jumping out into the waters of the Rhine and having a sneezing fit um, and, and cursing his sneezing. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a funny scene, yeah. which is a cruel scene also, I mean, of, of these sort of aristocratic girls, as, as I see them, um, you know, people who don't have any job to do but are kind of swanning around in some sort of luxury, actually making sexual fun of this working-class guy who turns up and is kind of smitten with them. I mean, I mean in, that is in detail funny, the way that Wagner uses his, his alliterative rhyming, uh, you know, to make their sarcasm and their cruelty and their wit telling in, in, in a humorous way, but it's very, it's very cruel humour. That Wagner is something of a specialist at cruel humour, I mean. But that seems to come back a lot later on in the characterization also of, of the dynamic between Siegfried and Mima, where there's a lot of abusive humour kind of pervading the entire relationship. But I mean, just to staying with Rheingold for a moment, it, the concept of the dramaturgy of Rheingold is so extraordinary because it's so incredibly original for its time. There is no model for anything like this. And the complexity and the humour of that, I think, is very well shown by, by the very end. This also points to an essential element of comedy, if you like, which is ambiguity. So at the, at the end of the piece, the gods are marching into Valhalla. And, you know, any other composer would have seen this as being, you know, a great triumphal procession scene, which it is. But something totally Brechtian is injected into this. First of all, by the fact that the Rhine maidens turn up protesting. But, but, and that's just part of the drama. What is totally outside the drama and is a very Brechtian gesture is Loga suddenly saying, hmm, I think this is a load of b****, basically. I'm, I'm watching this on the sidelines. And he's telling us how we should understand the aim, the ending of, of Rheingold. And doing so in a, in, a, in, a, in a very kind of brilliantly satirical, humorous way. So that when Wagner piles on the C major as they go marching up into, in, into Valhalla, we should be understanding that this is a, actually a funny, you know, it's a satirical moment. He's making fun of them with this C major and this, whereas, you know, the kind of uh, the befuddled Wagnerite tends to think, wow, this is great, you know, C major. And it goes on and on and on building up. But actually the whole point of it is ironic. And, and that's another kind of humour, uh, ironic humour, which is, I think, very important to the politics of Rheingold. Wagner's mocking the gods as they march pompously into Valhalla. That would be your reading. And I mean, I can totally see what you're saying. And I suppose I wonder what that comedy serves. To me, I was thinking that in a way it serves to reveal to Votan the depth of the um, problem and the trap that he's walked himself into. Well, it's, you know, I mean, I, I see it as being very much, a, a, you know, a commentary on something like the Habsburgs, if you like. I mean, this kind of aristocracy that 
was a kind of nomadic source of power ranging in the world and then walls itself up in a kind of fortress. I mean, it's the sort of fortress pentagon mentality uh, of, of, of rulers who've kind of lost touch and, and, and are kind of putting themselves in a, in a kind of bunker. So I guess the, the humour is saying that what appears to them to be a triumph is in fact a disaster because they're, they're locking themselves mm. up. In, in, in a false world and and you know the falsity of that world is going to be revealed in in valkyrie obviously yeah it serves what the character of loga serves who is an inherently comic character not not ha 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 comic but but a satirical figure and a satirical observer who's who's modern wit about the stupidity of the gods is, is at every moment very very telling you know and there are even moments when he actually suggests to Wotan, well, you know, may, maybe if we found a way to recompense the Rhine maidens, and Wotan is too stupid, too blinded by greed to realise that he's been given an opportunity to do something that would work. Mm. Uh, no, 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 he has to have it. He has to, his greed doesn't listen to Loga's much more subtle suggestion. So, so, so Loga as a satiric figure is alerting us to all all the way through with his little kind of side comments to to the flaws of the gods. So the comedy is actually serving a very important purpose. It's telling you don't get sucked into your Teutonic reverence for Wotan or Zeus or whatever your God of choice. God of choice is. Um, because these are flawed people. Uh, and and humour is a good way of revealing that. And do you think that has connections with the kind of anarchist Wagner of 1848 and, and the kind of desire to overturn the orders of the past? And It's adopting a satirical attitude to yeah. the powerful, and especially the powerful who lock themselves away in bejeweled castles. I mean, one of the big things that gets revealed to us through Rheingold is that inherent hypocrisy of the gods and their nobility in quotes is belied by the act of hypocrisy which you see Votan embody at every turn but there's also i mean there are other humorous aspects which are more kind of knockabout yeah yeah really i mean like the whole thing of alberich turning himself into a dragon, which is yeah. obviously a ludicrous dragon, yeah. because Wotan roars with laughter at it. But it, you know, it's like a sort of ludicrous theatrical trick, uh, which in fact, of course, leads directly to his capture. That's Wagner as a kind of flamboyant theatre manager, you know, knowing how to create a bit of anecdotal fun for everybody uh, in the midst of all this uh, serious political drama. And there's also social satire in... Valkyra, would you say? Like, I mean, the whole relationship between Fricka and Votan, you know, she wants him to move into this house so that she he, she knows where he is and so he's not off, you know, s***ing other women. And yet she's taken the moral high ground and is deeply enraged that he's bargained Freya to the giants, even though he's saying, well, yeah, I think you want this house too, you know. So there's there's quite a lot of... Well, the the interesting thing is that having done the ring in, or almost done the ring in Chicago, <laughs> um, it's very interesting how the American audience laughs a lot, very freely, mm, without mm, any mm. problem. I mean, they found the whole 
thing between Fricka and Wotan hilarious. Um, because, of course, it is a kind of slightly misogynistic commentary on, on the sort of classic domestic row, mm. you know, man and wife battling it out in a very recognisable way. Uh, and the audience in America loves that. I mean, they, and they, they're just, they're not afraid to laugh. So I was already surprised in Rheingold how much laughter there was um, at the sort of sheer outrageousness of some of, the, some of these characters' statements and behaviour. And, and why not, actually? Why not? And I suppose, would you compare that to a more like George Burdenshaw characterization of, of how you've seen Wagner presented and received in the UK and Europe, or mainly just the UK? I don't think people laugh much in Germany at performances of The Ring. That's just a different attitude. I mean, it's, it's, it's partly this, this over kind of making it too sacred, um, which, which clearly Wagner did not really intend. He put a lot of fun into it. Yeah. I mean, the other kind of thing that one can mention, you know, is, is, is much more, again, much more direct sort of knockabout humour. I mean, there's all this stuff in Valkyrie, in, between the Valkyries, which is sort of knockabout, very German. Uh, sort of, <laughs> your, your mare's brushing up against my stallion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's a very yo-ho-ho. Um, kind, kind of, of jolly hockey sticks. Jolly hockey sticks, exactly. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's there, it's there. In the... How do you deal with that? I would find that terrifying to have to stage. No, no, you just go for it. I mean, it's, it's just like them in, the, in their locker room. So there's the political satire, there's the social satire, there's the kind of almost pantomime vocabulary, which is Albrecht showing off with his newfound wealth and turning himself into a dragon and then, well, turning himself into a toad and then getting caught. Yes. You see, the thing it reminds me of is, is, is something like the language of Rowlandson, Georgian-British cartoonist, political cartoonist. OK. Where all the aspects of the story are encapsulated in a kind of satirical image so if you know if you want to see love balanced out with gold you stand a pretty woman there and you, and you build a gold yeah. pile in front of her and you say when i can't see the girl the girl's worth more than the girl so this is you know this is taking that whole issue of money power mm -hmm. versus love and and realizing it in in a, a very cartoon-like image and that is essentially funny. I mean, it is because it is radically oversimplified. And it's funny, but it gives way to something incredibly disturbing yes, in the kind of... Yes, it's also distasteful. Even Wotan finds it distasteful. Mm. I mean, it's humiliating. Mm. But then Siegfried opens up into really such a wealth of, I would say, different uses of comedy. I think you get echoes of the cartoon world which we've had in Rheingold, Definitely. and also echoes of a pantomime world, like the dragon. Well, the whole forging of the, the sword. forging, yes, yes, exactly. I mean, you know, kind of puffs of flame and spurts of smoke. And, I mean, of course, I can't help now talking to some extent about in reference to my own production of it. Actually, what happened with Siegfried was, I mean, each of these pieces was done in, within the same framework, but very differently. Siegfried was entirely seen through Siegfried's eyes, through the eyes of a child. So it was all about a child growing up. 
So the, the, the backdrop of the first act was a child's drawing of dragons and the forest. And all the furniture was, was huge. So that the adult, I mean, so Siegfried, obviously played by an adult tenor, was in a playpen that was like <laughs> this tall. So the only person who fitted this furniture was Wotan as the wanderer because he came in in stilts. Wow. So suddenly he was able to sit at the table and be exactly like, you know, the whole place belonged to him. So what, what Wagner does, as I use this phrase, the complete dramatist, I mean, with this forging of the sword, extraordinary sequence. I mean, he creates a kind of pantomime scene. I mean, it is actually the bakery scene from the pantomime, isn't it? It's the bags of flour and the, you know, the things, cream pies <laughs> yeah, yeah. falling on the floor and all of this kind of stuff. Brilliant theatrical humour. And so actually our idea was, and which made it very funny to, to the American audience, was all of this was being organised by Votan. And so what happened was every time he needed an anvil or the bath to put the sword in, or an Amazon package arrived, <laughs> huge, I mean, and, and in it containing a giant child's toy anvil set, bright okay. blue and yellow yeah, and green, yeah. just like, you know, I'm sure your kids have sort of cookery sets. Mm. Or, uh, and so all of this was like a sort of the world of the child. And it was hu great fun. Otherwise, this scene, if you kind of, I think, misread it, you see some sort of fascist hero. Limbering up. Yes, yes. You know, it's, it's borderline a bit. But I think if you give it this humorous, if you give the humor its freedom, then it's about a boy growing up and it's about, you know... His... When I was reading it again, I felt like Siegfried could almost be like Obelix. You know, right, it's like right. he's fallen into the magic potion. He's so strong. Obviously, he has, of course, also the, the quality of hyper innocence, which leads to lots of other comedy moments later on in the piece. It's disturbing, but it's also funny. The really dysfunctional and abusive kind of foster parent child relationship that Mima and Siegfried share Mima's always kind of feigning affection or care for Siegfried, but actually all he wants ultimately is to groom him to achieve the capture of, or the recapture of the gold. Uh, but yeah. it's kind of funny, you know, yeah. the mixing of the potion that he's, while Siegfried's forging the anvil, etc. is... Yeah, they're, they're both creating the means of the other's death. Mima is putting all kinds of disgusting things <laughs> yeah. in, into this potion that he's, he's making. Uh, uh, and it's brilliant and it's absurd, but, but, you know, you don't forget somehow that at the root of this is something vile. I mean, Siegfried doesn't realise his sword is going to kill Mima, of course, but Mima definitely, re you know, planning, is planning Siegfried's death. So, you know, it's, it's quite a Joe Orton scene. Yeah. Or Harold Pinter. It's a bit more lively than most <laughs> So what about the, the wanderer in Siegfried? Paul Kerry Jones said a very interesting thing about this the other day when we were talking about it. He said, well, it's a bit like Votan's, you know, he's still Votan, but he's assumed this new identity and this new spirit with which he's moving through the world. And it's like he hasn't changed his clothes or had a wash in 20 years. And... I can totally see that the Wanderer is 
there to serve some quite dark and strong dramatic moments in in Siegfried. I mean, there's that amazing scene with Alberich where you can just imagine Alberich doesn't ever need to even look at him. The light and the dark Alberichs are finally mm-hmm. coming together and having this brilliant reversal of what happened in Rheingold. But I don't know, when when the Wanderer is talking to Siegfried, it's almost like it's like Bob Dylan version of Wotan. Because he speaks in a very cryptic, kind of poetic manner. Wotan swims into the world of Siegfried, and he has no opponents. So he can afford to be laid back and humorous. And he sits down with Mima and plays this whole game with the riddle him game. about the yeah. riddle game and, and so on. And, he, you know, it's, it's all terribly unfair because obviously, you know, Wotan's going to win. Mm. Um, and he knows that. But at the same time, he's creating the person who's going to bring about his own demise. I mean, he's going to break his spear, which is... You know, I mean, as good a Freudian image of the father-son relationship that you can get, you yeah. could ask for, and it is done in a very, you could say, a very polished, humorous way. The the Wanderer is a very polished, humorous character, benign, witty, enjoying his superiority. Really, he doesn't have to deal with Fricker or mm. any troublesome truth teller. And of course, he fixes the whole thing. I mean, in, well, in in my production, he does. He's kind of got a newfound freedom, obviously, because he doesn't have all of the baggage of the establishment right. that he... Right, right. That he's, he... on the, he's, he's being a dosser. I mean, so all, all of this has a kind of gentle, what's the word, sylvan humour. The joy of Siegfried is, is that it's bathed in this affectionate musical light. But the, the whole tenor of Siegfried is, is this golden glow of forest light and murmuring and leaves nature mm. nature even the threat of the dragon and so on is kind of humorous it's pantomime totally it? well the, but the dragon i was thinking about this and i wondered what you thought of this H- how much humor do you think there is in the dragon i mean again that's almost a classic pantomime scene like watch out he's <clears> going <throat> to eat you and the holy fool has no idea how how dangerous he is because he can't feel fear but also um the incessant sleeping of the dragon and that's kind of funny but also what that maybe says about the power you get when you you know when you get the gold it's actually very boring it's the thrill of the chase of the gold which is Mm -hmm. obsessional and energizing but i think again i come back to this thing about wagner the complete dramatist i mean this has nothing to do with humor now but it's very very telling i think of of, of his imagination and his attention to psychological detail, that in the story of these giants, which is essentially is a very kind of cartoony story, rum, ba bum 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 ba bum this kind of this kind of language. But he takes the trouble to depict Fazolt's genuine long yearning for Friar's beauty. And just in a few phrases it's done, very, very subtly. And then he writes a really beautiful scene for Fafner's death. You know, that, that's where he's so miles ahead of any other person writing around that period. You know, because he just captures the human detail, the psychological detail of the dying giant. He doesn't just let him go, oh, but he comes out and says, who are you? What have you done? I, I, I think the thing that characterizes Siegfried is affection. 
Well, it is fundamentally an incredibly affirming experience to hear yeah. that music and to go through the love duet at the end of right. Act Three. Right. In in that duet, in that huge long duet for Siegfried and Brynhilde, at the end of Siegfried, I mean, there there is a, a lot of very telling human detail in depicting two people who don't know what to do with their first love. So, mm. you know, there is a, a lot of humour, I mean, very gentle humour, inherent in that scene. Mm. And I, I actually gave them each a bedroom to go into on either side of the stage. So they went off and, oh, God, this to is have not, not working out. <laughs> I don't know what to do with this, this boy in my life. I'm, I'm supposed <laughs> to be a goddess. How can I deal with a boy when I'm a goddess? You know, and it's all this kind of, you, you know, so that kind of teenage angst. My God, this is my first boyfriend. What am I doing? Mm. It's, it doesn't. It doesn't make you laugh, but it's. But you know, and at the end, they're like a sort of boy and girl marching off. And you know, it's it's delightful. It's yeah. delightful. It doesn't need to be pompous or bombastic or all those things that you know Wagner often is. And of course, we haven't talked about what I think one of the sort of com- comedic high points. Of, see, it was an amazing duet between Alberich and Mima. The double act. Which, you know, ends up with a kind of bun fight between them. I mean, that is a sort of classic cream cake. But also the moment where then the Siegfried tasted the blood of the dragon. Am I right about this? He tasted the blood of the dragon, which gives him the power to understand the birds, but also to suddenly understand the subtext to what anyone's saying. Right, right. So me... So me tries to continue with the old loving, I'm a loving foster parent act. But anything that comes out of his mouth is... That's right, and he has that lovely bit where, where he says very kind of smilingly, I just like to cut your head off. It's as though he's saying, you know, stroke your back or yeah. do something, really, give you a massage. He's actually saying, I want to cut your head off. And um, again, that's just That's a very funny genius. idea. Genius, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think there's any humour in Gustavo? Gosh, you really would have to kind of... Delve very deep. Delve very deep. And that was where we left it, with the decision not to delve into the darkness of Götterdammerung, where there is very little light relief. My thanks to David for sharing his wonderful thoughts and ideas. To subscribe to the Longborough podcast and to find out more about our work, please go to our website.